Hello and welcome to episode four of the Grains of Sand podcast. I'm David Walsh and we're joined by my co-host, Daniel Hayes. Hiya, Dan. Hi, Dave. How are you? I'm very well. Very well. How are you? I'm good. This is a topic right up my street today. It is. uh, We're going to talk about the origins of football and rugby in the town of Southport uh, starting in the 1870s and... Just, I'm just going to start off talking about Southport in the 1870s. Um, it was, for me, a, a, a time of, of great change. Uh, uh, we started to see the beginning of a lot of the older buildings on Lord Street um, being starting to go. Um, there was a, a period, period of uh, house buildings spreading out from the centre uh, along places like Sussex Road around that area. Um, there was also a, a gentrification with regard to um, the removal of some of the old cottages. Uh, Horseside, for, for example, the last remaining part of Horseside was was uh, wiped out in the 1870s. Uh, also, Southport grew uh, considerably. It took in High Park, Churchtown, Crossings of Marshside, following a further boundary extension um, and I mentioned it was a period of great change we saw some um, considerable buildings uh, come in the 1870s uh, the Victoria Baths was remodelled in 1871 on the promenade the Botanic Gardens 1875 we had the gas gas works in, in Blowick at Crowlands in Blowick um, the Prince of Wales Hotel Cambridge Hall uh, we saw the first tramways the infirmary on Virginia Street, the public library and art gallery, um, the Winter Gardens, 1874. It was it was really a period, in, and, and also the population growth from starting from, well, in, in 1861, it was roughly between 10 and 11,000. But by the next census, it had, it had gone up to, I think, around 18,000, which it continued to grow for the next 20 years after that, up to in the region of 40,000. Um, significant period of, of growth. And like I say, with all of just some of the buildings, there was a lot of churches. A lot of churches um, were built in the 1870s as well. St. Andrews, uh, St. Peter's in Birkdale, Trinity Hall, um, which is long gone now. On well, that's not a church, but I think it was a it was a school on Duke Street. There was so much going on. Um, yeah, it was for me a, a, a period of rapid growth. Sadly, we lost a lot of old cottages, which I I love the old cottages. I wish some of them were still here, but um, you know, yeah. And some of the some of the cottages actually, which went in around about eighteen seventy three. We're, we're actually on Duke Street, and you're, if you my my book that's coming out soon, ish, uh, you'll actually if you if you if you buy that book, you can find out more about them in there. But anyway, so Dan, what was it like? What was sport like in the eighteen seventies in Southport? Like in Southport, it was it was it was in its infancy. I mean, before yeah. eighteen seventy, the, the only guaranteed national holidays that existed were Christmas and Easter, so yeah. there was very little time for recreational sport. Uh, the, the Factory Act that had come in in 1850 had started to limit the working week to about 60 hours a week with an early finish on a Saturday. 
Uh, now, Sundays were set aside for church anyway. So Saturday afternoons sort of became sort of given over to leisure. Now, yeah. Southport, the Southport News and Independent, which was one of the, the, the few papers that were around at the time, uh, reported that there were still ongoing discussions about early closing for some of Southport's businesses uh, in, in November 1872, which is when our story really starts. But sport okay. had begun really with organised cricket in, in 1859 with, with Southport Cricket Club, which was on a ground in York Road, which is near Burtdale Station. Yeah. But, um, and like I say, but as the 1870s approached, sport in the town, it had been sort of exclusively the domain of the cricketers. Um, now, cricket did grow in popularity over its first decade, and, and so it wasn't really surprising that more and more clubs popped up. So it was the Alexandra Cricket Club that came about in 1863 that sort of kick-started the football movement a few years later. Um, the other thing to, to bear in mind, I guess, and we, we haven't really mentioned it, is there was a, a phenomenal number of private schools in the 60s in Southport. Uh, most of them yeah. played cricket, which was of considerable benefit to all, to all the local clubs. So there was obviously Sandringham, Southport College, Bickerton House, Sandfield School, Somerville. I, you know, you could go on and on and list them all. But from Alexandra. them came... Yeah, Alexandra, exactly. There was plenty of, of sort of useful talent that, that came through them. But like I say, it was through the existence of the Alexandra Cricket Club that had been formed in 1863 that... that that a football club would be would be founded nine years later. And, and football season had been designed to fill the months without cricket. So it typically ran from October through to March. And it was really yeah. something for the cricketers to do when obviously the sun had gone. Uh, it was it was Dr. George Augustus Coombe, who was the real sort of driving force behind the formation of that football club. He, he'd been the first house surgeon of Southport Infirmary in 1871. So he was charged with it, sort of improving the health of the townspeople. I mean, obviously, the, the, we've got Salas Popular, the town motto. It was a sea bathing resort. It was a health resort, wasn't it? Um, yeah. so, so he'd had the idea, really, of forming the town's first football club to fill those winter months. Football itself, though, as a yeah. sport that you recognise today, it was completely different, really. Uh, I mean, the, the term football originally covered an array of different games, you know, ranging from local kickabouts to, to public school things. And, and that and the word football has, has really been on quite a journey since it was first used in the 1400s to, to what we understand now. I mean, the stories of Greeks and Romans kicking heads up and down the streets for fun, obviously not in Southport, but... Um, <laughs> 1424 was the first record of football being in law anywhere. King James of Scotland banned the playing of football by his soldiers because it was just causing a distraction for all their duties. Uh, the first documented set of rules was in the 1630s, written in Latin by the, the head teacher of Aberdeen Grammar School. Um, but those sorts of things are largely ignored by all the football scholars that you get today. I mean, we, we've all heard the story of football was invented in England and it's a public school thing. And, um, and like I say, the football scholars kind of ignore all the Scottish links and uh, they, they look at the things like the Eton Field game, which was first sort of documented in 1815. And the public school system is where most historians pick up the story of the birth of football. Um, and as it increased in popularity in the schools, others started to create their own rules. For example, the rugby school and the famous story of how uh, the rugby rules came about. And that was 1845. But to, to cut through the chase of it, the, the, through all the differences, there were basically two codes of football there was what they called the dribbling code and the handling code and each of those schools leaned more heavily towards one or the other so it was quite common for some to switch from one to the other depending on who they were playing uh, but it's only been very recently and well into the 1900s that the term football stopped being used to describe two codes 
Now, the, the the object of the game, it's not, it wasn't that dissimilar to today. You know, set up a situation where you can kick a ball between some goalposts and then depending on the rules, it's either over or under the crossbar. But that's really where the similarities sort of end, really. Now, to progress up the, up the pitch, players have to try and break through an opponent's well, a line, really. Um, players at the back are trying to kick the ball into space for the forwards to rush onto. Some kicked and ran after it, others ran with the ball at their feet. Um but once the forwards had the ball, they, they had one thing in mind, just, just head for goal. So that pack of forwards would, would, would follow closely behind, ready to try and batter through a defence. And if they lost the ball, pick it up and carry on the charge. Now, if the ball was moved over the goal line, they could then take a kick at goal. And obviously, we've, we've seen in rugby, we've still got things like uh, kicks from goal from after a try and, uh, and even field goals where someone scores from open play. Yeah. Now, football, like I say, was was it was it was an evolving thing, and by the middle of the nineteenth century, uh, clubs were being created to represent different towns and districts, as well as as just schools. So, one of the most important things on the journey of football was was the the, the move to try and standardise sets of rules, because obviously, if you're playing against different schools and different teams that all play different codes and different styles, then how do you have a fair game? So that ultimately led to the foundation of the Football Association, which we all know is the FA in, in 1863. Now, a draft set of rules was created, which was designed to be enough of a compromise to try and satisfy the majority of clubs. And like I say, there were broadly two camps with an interest. Those who were pro-rugby rules, which were the handling game, um, and those that were pro-dribbling. And the 1st of December, 1863, that, that basic set of rules was drawn up. And that was predominantly a kicking game, which will come as no surprise to people who know the FA. And that still had, though, a very limited amount of handling. For example, the goalkeeper could handle the ball anywhere in his own half. Um but it did take some of the rougher elements of the sport out. Um, it also, what might surprise people, including an offside rule, which effectively outlawed forward passes at all. So it meant that the only way that you could get the ball up the pitch was to dribble it. So that makes that alone makes football that we know today a, a world away from what we what was what was back then. But the problem with those rules that the FA came up with was that they were they were they described a game which was so much of a mongrel and so much of a compromise that it. It was a game that nobody played and nobody wanted to play it. So that new F, the new FA was was a really, really fragile and unstable organisation. And um, even three or four years later, they, they were on the verge of shutting down. There was only six people attended their AGM in, in 1867. And the, and the president wow. of the FA, or the chairman of the FA, had even proposed closing it down because no one wanted to adopt the rules. Now, the interesting thing about it is people may have heard of Sheffield FC, now, they claim yeah. to be the oldest football club in the world. Is that 1857? 1857, yeah. Now, there is yeah. an older football club on record in Edinburgh in 1824, really? which was just called the Football Club. But Sheffield were the first ones to sort of document their own rules and to sort of take those further afield. So, really, by, by definition, Sheffield itself was an FA in terms of uh, an organisation that, that came together and played under a, a, a set of rules that were adopted by multiple people. And, and there were 14 clubs by the 1860s that were playing under those Sheffield rules. But when the FA got to 1867 and sort of proposed that, oh, maybe we should just dissolve, this isn't working, it was actually Sheffield FC that encouraged them to carry on and effectively coerced the FA into changing their rules to adopt some of the things that Sheffield had come up with. So they'd got rid of the offside rule by that point. They'd pioneered the use of goal kicks and free kicks and, and, Within a year, they'd, the FA had come up with a complete revision of the of the rules of football. Right, they're still they're still going, aren't they? 
They are, yeah. And I'm taking a whistle-stop tour through the history of football here. We're not, clearly, we're not going to cover the history of football in, in this podcast. Um, but what the what the establishment of a set of rules did is it led to a situation where in 1870 they were able to 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 play the first right. international match between England and Scotland. Now, strictly speaking, it's not an international that we know today because both sides were selected by the London-based FA. But it served a purpose because it made people realise that the only way to get these sorts of things to take place was to standardise rules. And therefore, the people who'd been left behind by the handling game, the people who hadn't adopted the the, the, the dribbling rules, they took notice of this and they, they thought, hang on a minute, this, this is a good idea, we better follow suit. So 1871 saw the formation of the Rugby Football Union. So you still had your two codes. You had your dribbling code, which was right. the FA, and then you had your handling code, which was, which was the RFU. Now, at that time still, rugby was still clearly the favoured game nationally. It was and the only place really booking the trend was Sheffield. So when our George Augustus Coombe, who later became George Pilkinson, was looking to form a football club, it was really no surprise yeah. whatsoever that rugby was chosen. It was it was the obvious choice. Yeah. It might you might not think that today, so, but so then that, it absolutely that, was. Eighteen seventy two. He was the driving force behind the formation of Southport Football Club at rugby, a, rug, a rugby team. Right. Yeah. Now, so we first learn about it in the in the Southport News and Independent, twenty seventh of November, eighteen seventy two, and the headline oh, was. Right the Southport Gymnasium and Football Club. And that was the first time we'd ever seen the word. So, we've, you know, I, when I was researching for, for my book, I'd never seen the name gymnasium attributed to the to the name of Southport FC or Southport Rugby Club at any point until this. But the headline read the Southport Gymnasium and Football Club, and it said that the club had recently been formed. So it didn't tell us when. We just knew, obviously, it was clearly going to be within a few days of that date. Um, and there were already a large number of influential members now, the gymnasium was fitted okay. out in the artillery drill shed on Park Street. And and a field for football was engaged so the gymna- in Manchester Road. Park Street would, uh, been, would have been erected posts. in the vicinity of the driving test centre. Is that right? Yeah. And, and probably a little bit towards Yes, that's Park right. That's right. Well, yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. So the, the want of a gymnasium had apparently been felt in Southport for quite a long time because the, the newspaper was more interested in the gym than it was in the football. Football had obviously not caught on yet, but gym apparatus and what have you, people were crying out for. And the, the article made reference to the Alexandra Cricket Club and the Southport Rowing Club as being two right. sort of promoters of this scheme of setting up this gym and football club. Um, so Coombe had clearly gone to two other sporting organisations and said, you know, can we help get something off the ground here? Now, that large field on Manchester Road became Southport Football Club's first yeah. home, and it was next to the Alexandra Cricket Club. So let's try and picture where Alexandra Cricket Ground is now. It, it's a large field behind the Hartwood Road area with access off Row Lane. That's that's basically where it was. So now, today, it's covered yeah. with housing on yeah. Melling Road, Erton Road, Grange Avenue. Back then, yeah. it looked very, very different. Hartwood Road hadn't been built, and... You know, I mentioned earlier about Southport Cricket Club that had first played in 1859. Now, they lost their ground in York Road in about about mid-1860s, probably about 1864, because because of the the building work was, was, you know, rapidly expanding. We talked about the town before being booming at this time. So they lost their ground and they had to move and they moved to Manchester Road and they were next door to the Alexandra Cricket Club. So 
halfway the down Manchester Road and Rowling, it's just fields. I it found was just them, cricket I think fields. it was the 18, I can't remember which census, Cricket Farm, uh, which was in the vicinity of... Um, Close to close to um, the junction of Manchester Road and Zetland Street, actually, uh, farm. Um, and I think I think there was another a couple of farms yeah. as well. And obviously across the road where Leyland Road Methodist Church is, that was in in the gra- in their what, what is now their grounds. That was all cottages as well. There was all cottages in there too. Yeah, honestly, you look at you look at the maps from back then and compare it to today. It's it's a world apart. It really is. Now, yeah. the other interesting thing about that Southport Cricket Club ground is that that also hosted the Southport Athletics Festival for a number of years, and okay. and and the the Athletics Festival was was huge in terms of the scale of you know events for people and crowds that dwarfed anything that any clubs would do for cricket or football. It was it was massive. Um, but yeah, so 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 what happened next then? I guess um, so. Coombe formed this club, but. Unlike today, clubs didn't necessarily play every Saturday. So there was lots of organisational difficulties. I mean, who do you play against when there's very few clubs knocking about? Um, so very organisational difficulties. Threat of poor weather in the winter obviously means that, you know, seasons are pretty stop-start. There's no undersoil heating back then. There's no pitch covers. You know, if it rains, you're playing on a bog or you're not playing at all. Um, and the other interesting thing is that because it was quite new recreational sport, the, the press didn't always report on it either. They didn't always see it as newsworthy. So you tended to find that the fixtures were only really, and the games were only reported on when there was nothing else to talk about. So you had huge gaps during the first season of the football club where there was nothing mentioned in the press. So we can either deduce from that that no one cared or that they didn't play very often because I've only been able to find seven fixtures in that first season um, at all. Yeah. And from and from those, we only, we only see one win. And it's and it's Ormskirt that got the dubious honour of being the first club to, to lose to Southport Football Club. All right. Now, if we go over to the, the, the first sort of full season, 1873-74, they did come up with a full fixture list. But again, the Southport visitor didn't even publish the first few fixtures. It got to the end of October before they decided to bother putting it in the paper. Uh, now, you talked about buildings before, some of the old buildings coming down. One of the buildings that is is still around in, in some guise is the Victoria Hotel. Uh, and that was the site of the first AGM for the club. Well, well the, the original Victoria Hotel was demolished in, in the 1970s. So what's there today is, is different. Did you just take in the name then? Is it called the Albert and Victoria next door? Yeah, that's 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 Waterloo Terrace. And the, the original Victoria Hotel is is where Maritime Court um, stands, which was a 1970s block of flats. We we sort of we learn most of the information that we we got today from from the local press, which tended to be reports by that were written and submitted by captains and secretaries of clubs. But another one, another prominent um, source of information for historians was a set of books that were published every year called the Football Annuals, and it's Charles Alcock's yeah. Football Football Annuals. And they've been published I've every seen, I year. I think I've seen one of these, actually. Yeah, and they're very, they're very rare and they're very expensive now if you want to get hold of them. There's very few people who've got copies of them, and I, I had to go begging, borrowing and stealing to get to get sight of some of these in order to, to finish my research off. Now, they, they've been published every year since 1868, and the reason they're important is because they included information such as when clubs were formed, where grounds were situated, whether they played association or rugby rules, the colours of jerseys and all that sort of stuff. So this this first year, this 1873-74 season, the first time that we've got an official record of Southport Football Club's membership of the RFU, 
But it's also an indication that after that second season, Southport obviously considered themselves a club that was well-established enough to submit their details in for, into a national book so that other clubs knew about them and their details were circulated. And it was the secretaries themselves that submitted it. So we know that whatever facts are published in that book are the facts that the clubs themselves believe to be true. So that first annual said in it that there was a healthy membership of the club of 76 people. So if you've got a match day playing squad of either 15 or 20, depending on who you're playing against, it suggests that you've got a, a healthy number of supporters that are, are paying members of the club as well. Now, the most interesting thing is that the jersey colours that are noted in that in that football annual are the very same colours that Southport Rugby Football Club wear to this day, which are black, red and amber. So despite wow. all the years we've been on since, 150 years since, <laughs> we still wear the same colours today. That's so with... Southport now being registered members of the RFU, their access to better quality opponents was obviously increasing. Uh, and seeing the benefits that winter sport bring, it took about three years, but other clubs started popping up in the area as well. But another indicator at the speed of the town, uh, at which the town was growing, was that newspaper publications started to become more frequent. So the Southport Independent, which had been three times a week for, for many months, became daily. And it became the Southport Daily News. Right. And in 1875, football has started to become so popular that adverts for football started appearing in those newspapers for shops on Lord Street. So there had been okay. stories that it was impossible to buy a football in Southport. That that is nonsense because we've we've seen the adverts for from eight from like say 1875. So before association football even started, you could buy either a round or an oval ball from from shop on, on Lord Street. Um, now, around about this time, sort of middle of the 1870s, that same cricket club we spoke about before that had been forced to move home for a second time, they were really experiencing problems. Uh, they tried to keep going through 1875, but they, they disappeared within that year. But their demise coincided with the loss of a very prominent local player. And this is a name that you will not forget when you, you're talking to me, Thomas oh. Wallandall Burnett. Oh, I know all about him. Now, he, he moved to Wales at this around about this time, and he turned out for the Winstay Cricket Club in, in Ruabon near Wrexham. And I've no idea how you pronounce Ruabon, so apologies to any Welsh listeners. But that's the last we'd see him in Southport for about four years. But like I say, don't forget the name. When they folded that cricket club, a number of those players left to join another cricket club who by now were playing at Skagebrook New Road, and that team was called Southport Gymnasium. Now, lots more clubs sprang up in Southport to try and compete with this original football club, Southport Rovers, the Walmers from Birkdale, they were prominent clubs. And from Southport Gymnasium came another club playing a handful of football games in 1876, originally under the name of Southport Gymnasium, but then changing the name in 1877 to be Southport Wasps. Now, also, also sharing that same ground in 1877, so still on Scaresbury Road, was the Church of England Temperance Society Cricket Club, who had also decided to play football. And within the within a year, they had changed their name to Southport Olympic. Now, on the 8th of March, 1877, the visitor finally cottoned on to the fact that sport was taking on, uh, was taking on a life of its own in the town, and they introduced a sports and pastimes section. And from that point onwards, records aren't bad. So yeah. this change of emphasis was a sort of clear recognition that sports were playing an increasingly important part of local life. Now, you've already mentioned that elsewhere in the town, there were various other things that were going on. So the Atkinson Art Gallery was in 1878. Uh, uh, yeah. It was opened in 1878. It, the town was really sort of taking off. Um, yeah. There were plenty of reasons to be optimistic by by that summer that uh, for the future of the game. Southport Football Club, Southport Wasps, Southport Olympic were all vying for local honours. So what happened next was, was really quite odd. So as December of that year 
um, came, the weather really started to take quite a significant turn. Now, the, the months of December and January of that year both saw below zero average temperatures. Now, that sort of weather event just you know doesn't happen very often at all. That winter was the seventh coldest winter on record, going back to 1659. Now, that cold snap wow. continued right into the new year, showed very little sign of, of, of abating. Um, I don't know whether anyone's heard of the central England temperature, but 1879 had a central England temperature of about seven degrees. But to put that into context, the average central English temperature is about 10 degrees. And even in the coldest years, and if you can remember 2010 being an example where we had significant snow, it would only dip to eight or nine. So there wasn't, a, there's not been a single year as cold since 1879. And even in 1963, when the sea froze over, the temperature was eight and a half degrees. So it was it was seriously, seriously cold. So faced with such, you know, inhospitable temperatures, Southport actually set up a committee that was formed by the mayor to try and alleviate some poverty in the town. And there was 1,500 quid raised for clothing and basic food and coal for heat. It really was poor, the, the, the weather. Now, that lasted right through to, to February. And the visitor was finally able to report another game of football um, on the 11th of February, 1879, when Southport Olympic faced off against a team called Fairfield. Now, that season kind of petered out. Now, as I said earlier, they usually only lasted until March anyway. But on the eve of the new season, the Southport visitor commented that 1879 would effectively be remembered as a year without any summer. So it was probably little surprise that at least one football club fell by the wayside. Now, that football club was Southport Football Club. That first, the original club, died in 1879 and that's a that's something that many people just don't know mm. now given given their success only a few years earlier it's probable that had it not been for that winter they, they would have continued to thrive um certainly with the quality of players they had they've got many that have been selected for representative honors uh, they were respected locally and a bit further afield as well and, it, and it's difficult really to see why they faced such an insurmountable challenge starting up again because olympic and wasps were still comparatively healthy but with that original club coming to the end, it gave an opportunity to Southport Wasps for them to become the town's team. And they dropped the Wasps suffix and they played under the name of, of what was dubbed the famous old club for another season. So when the list of matches were published for 1879-80, there was no reference to the fact that they used to be Southport Wasps, but they'd changed their colours and they were now blue, white and red rather than black, red and amber. And they moved from where they used to be playing, which was at the cemetery, or the ground yeah. next to the cemetery, they, think they moved was, to Manchester Road. Yeah, I think it was right, just just inside the boundary, beyond beyond the cemetery. Um, I, re I read something recently about about it. Yeah, so I think on some maps you can see um, where there's been uh, rec recreation grounds, bowling greens. Uh, you can, and that. And that site was was you know much maligned. It was criticised constantly because it was so poor. So they they took the first opportunities they could to shift, and they went straight over to Manchester Road and basically took up where the original club had left off. Yeah. Now, what was interesting though is that when they published the fixture card, they stopped referring it to it as Manchester Road. They started referring to it as Row Lane, which was right. probably because um, Hartwood Road had been built and it backed onto the field and blocked access from Manchester Road. So you could see that the town had been changing. Yes. Um, now, now, any notion that the original side had carried on, because obviously, if you look at it 
you know, year on year, there was still a Southport football club. But any notion that original side had carried on, you could be completely dispelled when you looked at who was playing. Um, there'd been a consistency of players right there through from the start. But when it began 1879, um, at least 11 of the players that were in the first 15 had played for Wasps in those previous two seasons. And then to further cement that, to mark a change of guard at the club a, a few days into the new year, there was a novelty match that was arranged, pitting past versus present. So everybody around clearly knew this was a new Southport Football Club. It just had a you know a different name. Now, to close the season out, the, the president of the club at the time was Lord Skelmersdale, and he invited the club and Rochdale Hornets to, to a game at his Latham, um, Latham Hall Park home. Now, that no one realised at the time the significance of that game. But on the 25th of August, the Athletic News newspaper, which was probably the biggest sporting newspaper around at the time, reported that Southport Football Club will not be continuing for the coming season. There'd been no warnings given. The Southport visitor made no comment whatsoever. Whereas Southport Olympic dutifully published fixtures as normal, Southport didn't. So Olympic had by that time been a, become a much stronger outfit. and The competition had, had, had come from another club, from Southport Hornets as well. And many of the members of that original Southport Football Club, or, or Southport Football Club number two, I guess you could call it, they left and many joined Olympic. So we've already had two Southport football clubs come and go by the point yeah. we get to, to 1880. Yeah. And this is where the story for association football really, really starts to take off. This is where Burnett, T, Thomas Bungle Burnett moved back to Southport around 1880, didn't he? He, he did indeed. Okay, so yeah, you, you're right, Dave. Thomas Burnett moved back to Southport in 1880. So this starts the the, the transition really from, from rugby to football. Now, the reason for that, Although rugby was the major game of choice for most people in Britain, one of the big significant developments for Burnett during his spell in Wales was that he turned out for not just Winstead Cricket Club, but Ruabon in games of association football. But, but to say that he was just a player kind of undersells his time. He was the captain in 1876 and 1877, and he even took, place, uh, took part in representative games for North Wales against the Sheffield Club we spoke about before. Um, and that he was even praised for his performances in the local papers. Now, he was an Englishman born in Liverpool, but he was capped once for Wales as well. And this was in their second ever international against Scotland. And these were the days when birth, yeah, birth qualification just wasn't even a thing back then. But he was obviously a, a, a cricketer, good with his hands. And although he played as a fullback in, in football, he, he volunteered to go in goal for that. So his only ever international cap came for Wales, not his country of birth, and in goal not where he played outfield. Now, you say that was for, for North Wales, was that? or was it? No, no, he, he played representative games for North Wales, but he played oh, international okay. football for Wales in their first, oh, yeah. their first ever international. Um, so, like I say, he moved back to Southport in the summer of 1818. He became involved with the formation of another Southport football club. So this is Southport football club number three that he becomes involved in. Yeah. Now, Although rugby was widespread, there was no national competition for rugby. So that was kind of a, a bit of a symptom for, for what lay ahead for, for the sport as a whole, because whilst rugby had been the dominant, um, the dominant code, uh, association football wasn't resting on its laurels. And in 1871, the, um, the Football Association had introduced what they called at the time the Challenge Cup, but what we now know as the FA Cup or the FA Challenge Cup. And now, it had been a real slow burner up north in terms of interest, but it was picking up interest. And by the end of that decade, it was really capturing people's imaginations. And in 1880, the, the season that we had no football club at all, 
both Burnley and Preston North End switched from rugby to association football. So there was a trend for this starting to happen. Now, in 1881, at the start of that new season, like I say, Burnett had got involved with the formation of a brand new football club, but it was still a rugby club. Now, it was the third iteration of Southport football brackets rugby, but it was a brand new club. It had brand new players. The only thing that was the same was the name, but they published a set of fixtures anyway, and the first of those were played at Bootle on the 1st of October, 1881. Now the the press at the time were quite damning in terms of the strength of the t- uh, the strength of the side, and even Southport Olympic were struggling at, at that time too. They they also went over to Liverpool on that day, um, so it probably came as little surprise that the fixture that had been scheduled for the following week against Liverpool Old Boys didn't happen. Now we don't know why it didn't happen. The press didn't say, but I think the evidence is probably leaning towards the Liverpool side not being able to get a team together because what happened instead is probably one of the most significant events in the history of sport in Southport. Burnett, who had been named as a fullback in that first side, he took the opportunity that had been presented by having a free weekend to take a team over to Bursco for a game of association football. And the reports in the Visitor and the Ormskirk Advertiser both say that it resulted in a 3-1 defeat. And sadly for me, as a historian, doesn't name the Southport team, despite listing who's in the Bursco lineup. What it did do, though, is it called them, it named the side T.B. Burnett's Southport. So it was clear that he was the instigator and the arranger of that game. Now, despite that trial game happening, the rugby club did carry on for a few more games, but it didn't make it past the end of the first month. Now, what's interesting to me is that they hadn't arranged any fixtures with Southport Hornets or Southport Olympic. So I can only speculate that's because they didn't see themselves as even worthy competition. They got absolutely panned in every game they played. They got really heavy defeats. So probably source of local embarrassment if they'd have come up against Olympic and the same would have happened. Now, on the 12th of November, 1881, a date that's kind of etched into the minds of most football fans in this town, Southport yeah. Football Club, the original Southport Football Club, made the permanent switch to association football, and that began a new chapter. So in the story of Southport Football Club, Burnett's role is, is really significant. He's the instigator of the switch. He's the secretary of the new club. He's also the captain. There's no doubt that he was the main guy. But the fact that the Liverpool Daily Post and the Southport Visitor were both able to report before it happened that this match had been intended to go ahead as association football, that gives us as much evidence as we want that this was planned. It, it hadn't been a spur-of-the-moment decision. Finding enough players available on a Saturday was, was difficult anyway, and there's plenty of examples of, of teams turning up with one or two short. Um, So it was pretty common, for example, for people to be asked to work on a Saturday. So it's a lot easier to get 11 players together than it is to get 15. So it's probably little surprise that this sort of thing was happening. Who was that? Following the Berska match and following the the two rugby games, or who was the game against? So the 12th of November, yeah, 12th of November, 1881, was against Bootle. And there is a reason for that. So if we step back a few years, back to 1877, and look at who else was in Rouabon at the same time as Thomas Burnett, there is another significant football name and a clue as to why all this might have taken place. We find the name of a guy called Robert Edward Lithgow. And he was the Welsh umpire for Burnett's first appearance for North Wales. So he clearly clearly knew the guy. Ah, Now, around that same time that Burnett moved back to Southport, Lithgow moved from Wales to the outskirts of Liverpool and there set about the task of forming his own football club. But instead of being able to, he persuaded Bootle St John's to become more ambitious and drop the St John's suffix 
and Bootle FC became one of the two significant clubs in that Liverpool district. Everton was the other one. Now, obviously, Liverpool fans will know that Everton did, uh, Liverpool didn't get formed until 1892. So the two prominent Liverpool clubs were Bootle and Everton. So having played Bootle under rugby rules under the last weekend of October and having not been able to field the side, it can't be coincidence that the final rugby side containing Thomas Burnett met the side that was organised by Robert Lithgow and two weeks later came back to play association football against the second team from Bootle. The connection between those two gents has, has got to be the most likely explanation for, for deciding to change codes. And the, the only guess really is that Lithgow offered him that fixture to help get them going. Because like I say, yeah. finding 11 men on a Saturday is, is a lot easier than finding 15. And if they're struggling less than a month into that season, it really doesn't bode well for the remainder, does it? So, Burnett presumably asked his teammates if they were willing to switch over. And most of them, I think there was three that didn't, most of them agreed. So there we go. There, there's the, the you know, a, a quick, I say a whistle stop tour between not having any sports at all in the town through to a rugby club being formed to its comings and goings. And that, you know, the, the how many deaths do you want to name of Southport Football Club till we get to the point where Thomas Burnett pops up and says, come on, let's have a game of, of football. Yeah. The big switch. The big switch. So, I could sit here and talk all night, but I've probably bored people to tears for half an hour at least already. So I think what we'll we'll do, Dave, is we'll leave it there. We'll leave people hanging on a cliff edge in terms of what yeah. happened next. Um, for those who who don't want to wait, there is a little book that you can that you can buy from Amazon by me called The Town's Game: The Origins of Rugby and Association Football in Southport. And obviously, it goes into a fair bit more detail than we've covered in half an hour. But um, but we will be back for another episode where we we pick up the story. We're going to, yeah, well, so we're going to be picking the story up in 1881-82. Yeah, we'll pick the story up in 1881-82 and, and we'll take the story through to the formation of today's football club, which was in 1888 as Southport Central. Um, the rugby story will carry on alongside that. I won't leave the rugby fans hanging in terms of what happened to them. Um, but yeah, we we will come back and we will record an episode two. Great. Well, I've I've really enjoyed that, Dan. Thank you very much. Um and I hope you, you listeners have too. So please uh, keep your eyes on social media for um, the following episode, uh, which is episode five of Grains of Sand, where we, uh, we continue to talk about the origins of football and rugby in Southport. Thank you very much, Dave. See you now.